Hello, can Hi. you hear me? Yeah, I think we're all here. Are we? Yep. My goodness, yeah, yeah. it's a can miracle. Can you guys hear me? <laughs> we know that educators are time poor which is why Canvas designed their suite of solutions to work seamlessly with teachers to enhance and support teaching and learning. One thing that comes up again and again when Canvas speaks to teachers is the importance of training and CPD and how it's an area that they would like to have the opportunity to do more of if there was the time and budget available. That was the motivation for launching Practice for Canvas, a new software that provides primary and secondary teachers with a low-risk environment to develop competence and confidence in all areas of their profession using a new and effective peer-to-peer training style. Practice for Canvas allows teachers to get scaled feedback, targeted coaching and, crucially, practice what they've learnt all within their existing VLE. Using Practice for Canvas removes the stress and expense of traditional training without compromising on the quality of learning and professional development. If you'd like to find out more about how you can use Practice for Canvas, please visit practice.xyz for more information. everyone and welcome to the EdTech podcast. A big shout out and thank you to anyone who's been in touch to say hello this week. I'm glad you're enjoying the episodes we put out and keep following the conversation at Podcast EdTech. We'll be back with the Education 4.0 series next month. Last week I had the good fortune to attend a meeting in Plymouth on the RSA's Cities of Learning project. Plymouth, along with Brighton, is one of the testbed cities to connect learners, employers and edgy providers in a local ecosystem. This week, I'm off to WISE to join an editorial meeting and host an interesting discussion on fostering learning societies in Paris. It seems that in both cases, creating local impact and meaning is fast countering the picture of learning put forward in a globalised world, often bandied about. Going hyperlocal, a hello also to Gary Smith at the EU-funded Set Squared Entrepreneur Programme for tech startups. Set Squared is ranked the world's top university-based business incubator, and Set Squared have a two-day application programme on the 28th of February and 1st of March in Guildford, Surrey. Free places are allocated based on the strength of the business case put forward in the application, and the link to apply is in the show notes. On the Ed side, Yinga Kong is a first-year student currently studying at the University of College London, or UCL. Yinga wants to interview people from finance, technology and academic fields in order to help students better understand the world of work. If you're interested, please get in touch and I can help connect you both. What else? A big thanks to Canvas by Instructure for sponsoring this week's episode. We rely on support like this to keep us writing, editing and publishing, so thanks again. This week's episode is the first of a few episodes where we start to dig into some contemporary educational research and how that might inform teaching and learning decisions, leadership and product design. 
For UK listeners, my guests likely need no introduction, but for those listening in from any other of the 145 plus countries, you'll be hearing from the tour de forces that are Laura McInerney and Becky Allen, both co-founders at Teacher Tap. We're talking about everything from genetics, intelligence and learning to how to ask questions and what to do with a shit ton of data to make any sense of it whatsoever. As usual, there's loads of interesting further reading off the back of this week's episode. So do dig about in the show notes at the edtechpodcast.com and say hello to us at Podcast EdTech on Twitter if you're listening in. Have a good week. On the line, uh, both co-founders of TeacherTap. So welcome both. Hi, morning. Um, Laura, I've got to just got to ask you before we kick off, how did your parents get on at BET? Oh, my parents had a great time. To them, it was like 35,000 people, friends that they hadn't met yet. So they just went and chatted to everybody. They loved it. And uh, did they need any Kendall mint cake or did they survive okay? No, no, they were absolutely fine. That's that's my parents' best energy. There's literally no better day for them than 35,000 new people to talk to. <laughs> they sound wonderful people. Um, and yeah, so before we start, I wanted to kind of pick your brains. I, I was reading last night and, and Becky, perhaps this is one for you. Um, I've got my question here. Let's talk about Robert Plowman. Uh, are you aware of Robert Plowman? I am. In fact, I've co-authored with Robert ah, Plowman. Okay. So I'm really interested about uh, this idea of or, or the relationship between uh, intelligence and genetics. And obviously it's quite a, um, we have to be kind of be careful what we infer from it. But um, it seems to be something that people are talking more about. Um, I, I noticed the article in TS recently about um, growth mindset is bullshit. So I just wondered if you could kind of speak to um, what the latest research was around um, intelligence and genetics and the relationship between it and what that means for um, teachers being motivated in the classroom and parents feeling like uh, they can do something for their children as well. Sure. So the kind of work that Robert Plowman does and others who talk about intelligence and a genetic basis for it is kind of statistical work. It's looking for correlations and looking for um, what to, to what extent um, do our DNA markers act as predictors, statistical predictors for how well we're likely to do in school. Um, and the answer is they do. And I think that's OK. And I think it's completely intuitive to anyone who's been a parent and understands the extent to which actually how your children turn out is in part completely outside your control. And it's intuitive to teachers who know that children are very, very different in their cognitive function and how their brains work. And, and that some part of that is just intrinsically who they are, who they were born to be. Yeah. But the important thing to point out all the time is that our genes, the things that we were endowed with by virtue of being born, these things cannot make us intelligent. 
um, our genes can only get expressed, can only um, can only uh, contribute to us becoming intelligent through the environment that we live in. So it doesn't matter how kind of fantastic your genetic endowment is if you're not given an environment that allows you to express them um, and become, you know, really smart through 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 learning and through being taught. Um, then 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 having that initial genetic endowment is no use at all. Um, and then and then the second thing to say is that the literature is very clear. It's very clear that whilst in part how um, how easy it is for children to learn and get on um, educationally is in part um, determined by their um, but by their genes it also but it also says that it's also determined by their environment and that school is part of that um, so so to me it's it's very clear that this literature tells us that as schools we have we have an important part to play in ensuring that children get on and learn and can be successful in life that's a great answer. Thank you. Um, and I mean, it'd be interesting to see, uh, there's lots of talk about, you know, manipulating genes and gene editing uh, when when we kind of hear some of the uh, futurists speaking. Do you, do you sort of see that playing out in uh, sort of next 10, 20 years or is that sort of still quite fantastical to you? So in humans in the next 10, 20 years in a way that's kind of, uh, significant to us in a country like the UK? No, absolutely not. Um, you know, do, do I think it's something that philosophically and morally we have to start talking about? Like, yes, I, mm. I, I absolutely do, because the last thing we want is the science to move ahead of of the moral arguments about what it means to be human and and what we what what we want the human race to be like. I've really enjoyed reading your three-part series on the pupil premium and I felt that I learned a lot around, you know, the idea of sort of homogenous uh, or hom- homogenizing groups if that's even a an expression, but this idea of, you know, not too freely lumping um, very different students just based on criteria such as, um, you know, the income of their family. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And um, in addition, so Laura, I really enjoy reading your Twitter feed because it's always uh, quite frank, should I say? I think I saw a tweet recently, it was about uh, most articles around social mobility making you nauseous, uh, but there was one particular one that you found a, a lot of depth in. So I just wanted to dig into the idea of, you know, in terms of educational research, um, what are the expressions that perhaps do make you nauseous in that way? And, and, what, and what perhaps are a bit more complex and actually valid in, in, in um, you know, helping whether that's teachers in the classroom, uh, school leaders or indeed people um, building solutions or, or kind of tools for those people as well? So I'll let Becky come back in on the research in a sec because I think she's, as you said, she's much more expert on that side of it. But in terms of the language, which is the bit where I get uh, more involved, I don't like it when we talk about social mobility in a way that makes out as if being um, being either a manual worker or a labourer or certain jobs are somehow not acceptable and that every single person wants to become a lawyer or a doctor. And I just think that the most important thing is that we have utter freedom and we're able to go on and have the skills and the knowledge to be able to do the things that we want to do in the future. And I don't think the world is any better served by a really wealthy child who wants to be, for example, a carer Mm -hmm. and being told that they're not allowed to do that job than 
than um, if you're from a poorer background being told that you're never going to make um, a top athlete or you're never going to be allowed to become a lawyer. So I think for me sometimes just the, the way we talk about it and the words and the professions that we value don't under, you know don't always value the whole of human society and there's many different jobs, there's many different ways that you can choose to live your life and what I would hope for for all children is that you get to pick and to do that you need a certain curriculum, you need a certain uh, range of experiences and that's when I don't like social mobility just going in 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 one very particular narrative yeah okay and then Laura on the on the pupil premium um articles um could you sort of summarize the the kind of main thinking behind that for people that aren't familiar with your work sure Becky do you want to come in on that sorry Becky (laughs) um I wanted to write these articles about the pupil premium um, to really explain on multiple levels why I felt um, that uh, labelling a group of children on the basis of their um, entitlement to a set of benefits that in turn largely gave them free school meals um, and then treating these children in a special way within the system and documenting how we were treating them and demonstrating that we somehow had closed the gap um, had kind of a pretty destructive was a pretty destructive force through the education system um, and this was a you know this was a policy that was introduced with the best of intentions and again we're back to you know these social justice arguments you know of course everybody wants to close the gap. Everybody wants um, our life chances to be not a product of the, of the family that we've grown up in. Um, and, and this narrative has driven almost everything that's been going on in education policy in recent years. And the challenge that I made um, in these blog posts was in part that this is not a meaningful group of children to have interventions on, in part because actually they don't come from the lowest income families, which isn't well understood. Um, the very act of the family families getting the benefits that give them the free school meals means that their income tends to leapfrog over another set of the working poor. So that by targeting pupil premium children, we're not targeting low income children and we're not targeting um, children that um, have a, ha- are, are the most educationally or socially in need in our system. So that this idea of targeting them wasn't a meaningful thing to do. Um, but not only that, that, that the idea of having to think about how you were going to spend money on this specific set of children and this set of children who were ultimately contained within classrooms with lots of other children um, drove an agenda that I felt was not always a helpful in- agenda around thinking about interventions for a set of children who didn't have a well-identified set of needs. And the main sort of the conclusion that I took from it, um, which seems sort of partly open-ended, but was around this idea of developing focus and attention. What did you feel was the conclusion of your writing there? The the place that I got to was that we need to recognise that when children sit in the same classroom together, although we may think that they're experiencing the same thing, Mm. that frequently they are not. And they are not um, because of differences um, in their cognitive abilities or their or their prior knowledge or their um, attentiveness or, you know, some sort of cognitive function that is that is um, enabling them to access that lesson in a particular way. 
And I think that has a couple of implications and one for policymakers, which is a troubling one. But it is if, if you if we want to close the gap to accept that most of it is happening inside a classroom and that these kind of patch on interventions such as um, uh, uh, one to one tutoring or like breakfast clubs or things like that mm. are going to be very marginal in the contributions that they make if we don't address what's going on in how children experience the classroom. And then the other the other argument is we have to face up to the idea that our classrooms, um, uh, it's hard to create a classroom that benefits all children equally. And we need to think more explicitly about who we are creating our classrooms for um, and, and, and so on. Very good. Well, this brings me on to, so in you both have your sort of uh, past lives, as it were, which I'm... <laughs> but so, Laura, you were formerly the editor at Schools Week and Becky, um, a professor at the Institute of Education. Um, so you're both obviously now working with uh, with and on TeacherTap, um, probably among other projects, I would imagine. But what <laughs> bits do you miss about your old work and what bits do you love about what you currently do? <laughs> you go first, Laura. <laughs> sure. So obviously I was a, a teacher before I was a journalist. So I was a teacher for six years and then I was a journalist for about four or five years, predominantly at Schools Week and still at The Guardian. Um, I think I, I, I probably miss teaching the most and that's still the one where I miss the in, sort of the craziness of children and the way that every day goes in lots of different directions. And you'd think that being a journalist in a newsroom would be weirder than being around children, mm -hmm. but it's not. Um, so <laughs> I, I miss the classroom and the immediacy of your effect. From journalism, um, there was there was many things about it that I think are, are an it's an amazing job. It was so privileged to do it, but I always found it quite challenging. And looking back, I still think that um, as much as I was proud of what we've achieved, I think Schools Week is amazing. I think it totally disrupted the way that news was done in education in England, and that was really important. We became much more investigative. The way the profiles worked, the book reviews, the blog reviews got the community more involved, and that's changed the way that education reporting is done in lots of other magazines and newspapers as well and I think that was amazing um, but what I like about TeachTap now is I've always been interested in how we find out stuff and how we communicate it that's what links teaching that's what links journalism and it's now what TeachTap is doing at just such a level that we've never been able to do it before you know with just three questions a day we're able to take all of this information about teachers and start to learn stuff that we've always wanted to know the answer to and that enables the whole of the teaching community if they engage with these results to get smarter and the potential for what that could change in terms of classroom practice leadership practice how schools work is just mind-blowing so it, it I miss things about my old jobs, but in terms of the mission itself, I think that what TeachTap can go on and is starting to do is just so incredible that I, I wouldn't want to go back and do either of those jobs right now. And, and I think for me, I, um, during my academic career, I was I was always doing highly quantitative research with very, very big databases. Um, and, and that's what I'm continuing to do now. It's just a very different data set. Um, so, so now I'm really dedicating myself to working on the massive data set that we've built with TeacherTap, you know, something like almost three million data points already wow. that tell us something about what's going on in schools. And what's the story sort of in terms of how you two came together and how TeacherTap formed? How, how did that all come about? Well, the TeacherTap side. Um, uh, so at the time, I was um, actually still at Education Data Lab um, and working there. And I'd 
during my academic career, I'd had a long, many, many attempts to run surveys of teachers um, and they don't really work very well. And the reason why they don't work well is that teachers don't sit in front of computers. So when you email a, a survey or even post a survey, the response rates are incredibly low compared to trying to do it in other professions. Uh, and it became clear to me years and years ago that at some point we should be moving to a mobile device to be able to survey teachers and find out what's going on in schools. Um, but we'd never done it. And um, I got a phone call from someone who knew me at Nesta, which is the uh, kind of technology um, organisation um, charity that the government set up to kind of um, encourage kind of digital experimentation and growth. And he just called me up and it was nearly the end of their financial year. And he just said, well, this is a strange question, Becky, but I don't suppose you've got any kind of ideas of just kind of little tiny um, techie things that you'd like to do in the education space because we've got a tiny bit of money. Um, and um, I said, well, yeah, funnily enough, I do. I've always wanted to be able to survey teachers um, in this particular way by asking them a tiny number of questions um, every day. Um, and um, he said, great, yeah, great. So he, he gave us a grant um, from Nesta. And we also got a tiny bit of money from um, the Gatsby Foundation, a charitable foundation who equally I'd worked with in the past and had challenges around trying to understand the teaching profession. So then the question is how Laura gets involved and perhaps she'll explain that. So uh, I, I don't have much memory of this, but Becky tells this story. And so I, and I'm given to believe everything that Becky says. So um, she, apparently we had a conversation, which definitely sounds true, where I said, um, instead of using this survey as Becky was originally intending it for trainee teachers, so you could learn more about what was happening during their placements. I, because I was at the newspaper, said, oh, it would be great if you just asked every teacher these mm -hmm. questions, because then within a short period of time, we could get data that would be useful for news stories because you know often you I was writing editorials at the end of a week about what Damien Hines or whichever else education secretary had done something and I, I was saying this is what teachers think but you know I might have only phoned eight or ten people and checked out Twitter I had no great understanding of what was happening across the country whereas if we could survey teachers quickly then schools week could be more accurate in its data and so Becky said um, that sounds great Laura but if you want that to happen then you have to help me and so that's how I got roped in and uh, and from there we we sort of started to set it up although we probably need to talk as well about Alex who's been really mm. important um, because at, at a certain point Becky and I were going along having developed this app and realized that there was actually lots more to it Becky you might want to talk about this because you're the person who actually realized what we needed it just became apparent that as people started answering questions the amount of data we would generate would be absolutely enormous mm. and whilst I'm a data person I'm also was realistic about my capacity to actually manage this on a daily basis um, so I knew Alex Weatherall who at the time was teaching full-time as a physics teacher up in York um, quite well through um, the research ed uh, movement where he'd done lots of the work for them kind of sorting out um, things like their conference brochures and things like that um, and we'd we'd had ideas in the past of kind of techie things we could do together so I, t I took a trip up to Leeds to persuade him to get involved too um, and he's been very much the kind of the third partner in this. That's fantastic. And for those people listening in who aren't familiar with TeacherTap, so if I understand correctly, so you ask um, how many teachers a day? Three questions. Last week we had around uh, 3,000, uh, about 3,000 a day. I'm just checking actually. So yesterday we had 3,107 people answered. And that's across the United Kingdom? 
So mostly in England, we do have users from across the UK. So you can sign up if you're across the UK. And we've now just switched the app on for a few European countries as well. But um, predominantly the questions have been targeted at England. So where we've had people on the app who are from Scotland and Wales, they sometimes say the questions haven't been that relevant. Going forwards, okay, yeah. we'd like to be able to change that. But at the moment, it's predominantly in England. Mm-hmm. And then the the kind of kickback for the teachers, apart from the fact that, um, as I note on Twitter, it seems to be quite addictive, um, is that they then receive sort of uh, CPD, so bite-sized CPD in, in response. Is that correct? Becky, do you want to go for this one? Because you've got your theories on why people answer. Yeah, so the... So- The way the app works is you answer these three questions. They're always multiple response questions, so they take seconds to answer. You get to see the results of everybody else and what they responded yesterday to yesterday's questions. And then on the final page of the app, you get um, we give you an article to read every day, and we try to find things that take like three to five minutes to read, some sort of um, article or blog post that's going to be relevant to your professional development. And what's really interesting about the way it works is that when you ask people in a public forum kind of why do you use the app they always talk about the professional development aspect and how important it is to them whereas kind of privately we know that teachers will admit that the reason why they use the app is just that they're really really curious about kind of what the profession is like Mm. and seeing what other teachers are like and I think sometimes it's easy to forget that teachers ultimately work, you know, they work in a in their own school in a relatively isolated way. And this kind of question of just am I normal, is my experience typical, um, is a really important question for teachers to be able to answer for themselves. And you've got three questions a day. I just wondered how long is your list of prospective questions? You know, I can imagine you you're getting really excited and thinking, oh, actually, I want to add that one. And the other one was, you know, do you kind of run the questions in sort of batches, uh, sort of thematic batches where you then get a, a kind of wider understanding or a deeper understanding of a particular issue? Yeah. So, I mean, early on, we really just mixed it up and we were asking different types of questions across the week, all kinds of things. Um, And now we've got to the point where we've just started trying to batch a little bit more. So we don't want to ask you in a particular week only questions on one topic, but we do tend to kind of concentrate on one thing. So last week, for example, we asked loads and loads of questions about behaviour in school and disruption in class and behaviour policies. What's interesting about it is you ask that bunch of questions (laughs) And it just the analysis that you do on them, which we do in a weekly blog post. So we'll have a blog post out today about behavior in schools. Um, It it just generates another massive long list of questions about why you found what you found. So it's a really interesting way to kind of do research. It's very, very kind of exploratory. And every single response that you get leads to another question about why. Um, And there's always teachers on Twitter looking at our results and chatting about them Mm. and saying, well, is it because of this? Is it because of that? How do we interpret it? And we can always say, well, let's ask another question and and test your theory about why teachers are answering the way they do. You should be uh, speaking at all of the agile conferences because it seems a very agile approach to, yeah, you're almost getting the the response and then putting things back out there straight away. Um, What's the most unusual thing that you found out uh, from TeacherTap? So something that surprised you both? 
my favorite finding originally was when we asked about going to the pub on Fridays with colleagues and we originally found that our teachers in outstanding schools went to the pub together more often mm. than those in other schools we subsequently reran that finding and didn't get it a second time around so <laughs> uh, we're not we're not sure we need to we need to kind of carry on what I like about that is the idea that one day you could perhaps do a randomized control trial in which you offer sort of vouchers or pub trips for some schools and not for others and then you could find out whether or not uh, going to the pub does actually make a difference to outcomes but it's small things like that you know for instance tea and coffee we did a big one around tea and coffee and the, uh, whether you get free tea or coffee do those things matter and then this other one which was about uh, which whiteboard marker do you use chisel tip or bullet tip that was by People went far, crazy for that one I went crazy for it <laughs> hashtag team chisel who's still lost and you know we also discovered though some really interesting things where um, in small primary schools sometimes the head teacher will will order the board markers for the entire school and there was one head teacher who was always ordering chisel tip for her whole school and it suddenly got her to rethink whether in fact she was winding up what would probably be two-thirds of her staff so you know those little tiny findings that sometimes don't seem very important can have quite a disproportionate effect that's very interesting and does it yeah then uh, kind of trickle down to the same approach of how they sort of procure CPD or something like that where people might feel they want more of a say in not just their chisel tip markers but also their own training and so on. One of the most important things that it's done is make people realise that not everyone thinks like them. So even that in and of itself is important. As you say, Sophie, if, if you're going into making a decision about your school, remembering that not everybody thinks like you, then that's really important. I had this obsession that house prices were really, really important. Now, that's because I live in London and I'm friends with lots of people under the age of, of 35. And so, you know, their experience of the housing market is completely different. When we ask questions, if you live in the north and you're in your 50s as a teacher, you probably paid off your mortgage so actually your priorities and, and your concerns about living expenses are completely different so I think that's another nice benefit of TeachTap. Um, so you've got all the you know this amazing wealth of data and the ability to kind of analyze it and segment it in this way um, what's the big plan from you know over the next few years for TeacherTap uh, you mentioned the extra uh, countries coming on board but in terms of sort of funding and, and what you would you know really like to achieve with TeacherTap um, what's the goal because there'll be people listening in who may also be partners or users so hopefully we can try and help out in that way so one of the big things for us is getting more teachers using it and um, that enables us to find out more it also means that more people are engaging learning the lessons reading the tips so that's really a, a main focus for us as we've said we, we want to be able to expand this to other countries and to do that we could do it reasonably soon we think but it will mean that we need to have slightly different questions even just the types of job roles that you have in England versus Scotland are quite different the curriculum is different um, even things like holidays we ask different questions during term time and not term time so if you've got different holidays going on then that's that's quite tricky for us to sort out 
out, so making it global. And then um, we need to keep thinking about how do we keep teachers on there? How do we make it more useful for them? And also, how do we get the lessons shared um, across the community? And we've got to keep asking questions of our community so that we can find out how we can do things better. Even just in the last few weeks, we've been asking whether our notification, which goes off at 3.30 every day, should we give people another option? Because some head teachers have said, uh, actually, 3.30 is not great for our staff because they're teaching in a lesson. I don't want their phones going off at 3.30, so I'm not sure that's the right time. Actually, the majority of our users told us that 3.30 was great for them. But what we want to do is try and adapt TeacherTap so that it can get as many people on board as possible and serve them even better. And are you looking for investment to do any of your plans as well? Yep. So at the moment, um, we're, we're currently... Uh, thinking about how we fund it going forwards. As we said, we've had really good funding from Nesta and Gatsby. Um, we've had some more offers of funding, and so we're looking at um, what that would enable us to do. If we can take the funding, then we can hire more people, and that will improve the user experience, improve the app more quickly. Um, so we're currently weighing up our options on that. Okay, and then obviously with the wealth of data, um, can you kind of see yourself collaborating with other uh, potential users of that data or what? how will you kind of manage that side of it as well? Becky, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, well, there's several sides to that. I mean, there's there's the side of um, the kind of the pure research side, mm -hmm. um, which we are working on. And we've got both academic projects going on um, that are using the app. Um, and also for ourselves, there are things that we want to learn. Um, and, and we're doing all of that. And then, you know, you're gradually moving across into people who are interested in the data um, because it helps them understand schools and because mm. they're people who work with schools, they're people who are selling products into schools and so on. Um, and so we've started to do work in that area too. One question I always ask uh, our listeners is any people, books, resources, um, you know, that you find uh, a lot of inspiration from? Becky, um, you're the podcast queen. You're the one who's always listening to people. So I am. But, you know, I, I mean, it, it depends. I, I mean, lots of the podcasts I listen to are ones your users will, your listeners will already know about. I mean, I guess one of my favorites at the moment now that we are building a business is, is to listen to things like How I Built This. Mm. Um, and there's also one I think it's called something like Second Life that's quite similar, but talking about people who've built a company kind of uh, in, the middle of their, in the middle of their career. They've had a career change that's led to them building companies. So I, I, I enjoy at the moment listening to things like that along with the usual things that everyone listens to okay and how about you laura um so i'm i'm a big reader less less good on podcasts but um one of the things i've had to do is you know all, all three of us in the teach tap team came from teaching and then becky's obviously been doing her academic research and i was at the newspaper but but we've got some business background actually both Becky and I started out um, within <laughs> consultancy and business many years ago um, but we, I've got to go back to that and gem back up again so I've been reading an awful lot around um, tech business and ed tech in particular which is new I read Class Clowns which is this amazing book about how people lost billions in ed tech so that was that was informative um, and I've recently just read a great book called The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick which is um to do with founders of any business but it's about the questions that you ask people to find out about your business and actually it's just a fantastic book about questions because one of the things at TeacherTap is we've learned how to write 
really good questions. It's a skill that I don't think Becky and I necessarily thought about it when we started it, but how you ask questions and the words that you use and which questions go with which other questions to give you really powerful knowledge is actually a cool skill. And it changes how you have conversations with people once Mm -hmm. you realize which questions work. And the mom test gets into how different products over the years have asked different types of questions to elicit different information. And it's, it's just really been useful for TeachTap, but I think it would be useful for anyone you know teachers ask questions all day they should read this book still (laughs) I've got I'm just in the room next door we've got Richard Herring's book of questions which is slightly more random probably but have you got any uh, like top three questions that are, are good for sparking conversation or getting people talking having read that book yeah, so one of the things he talks about and one of the things we've done a lot at Teacher Tap is instead of asking people generics about the future or, or do you agree with X, Y and Z, ask them specifically about what they did in the past. So with behaviour, we haven't asked things such as is behaviour better or worse now or how do you feel about behaviour? We are specifically asking people in the last lesson you had, did your, le- did your lesson stop because of bad behaviour or think of your lesson you were teaching closest to 11am, did you do any group? work what did it look like and by asking about specifics you get much better information and data from which you can then plan how how to change things because you know how people are already behaving and then in terms of the future which we do want to ask about you know we've discovered that if you give people choices that can uncover their motivations that will be better so for instance we've asked people even just this week on behavior again would you you've got two choices of working in a school you walk around one school and the teachers go home reasonably early but the behavior is really challenging or you walk around another school impeccable behavior but the staff all say you'll have to work really long hours which one would you choose and you know we've found this really big preference for longer working hours with impeccable behavior and that's important because that's telling us that when teachers talk about workload they're not necessarily talking about long hours Mm. they might be but they could be talking about other types of work that they don't enjoy and that could be the emotional labor of dealing with behavior so those two things specifics about the past and choices about the future have been really important learning points Mm. right i need to read this book and ask some uh, really pressing questions for the next podcast episode well thank you both so much for your time if people are listening in and they'd like to connect or follow what you're doing what's the best way for them to go about doing that so our website is teachtap.co.uk and the blogs are available every Monday on there, teachtap.co.uk slash blogs. It's tap with two Ps as well, should make that clear because it's the app that you tap. So teacher <laughs> tap with two Ps. Um, we're also both on Twitter. My name's obviously a bit of a pain to find, but I am Miss McInerney. <laughs> Becky, what are you now? I'm Prof Becky Allen. Prof Becky Allen um, and teacher tap is also on Twitter and Facebook as well. Yeah, thank you both so much. Thanks, Sophie. Thanks. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you're interested in events coming up, here are a few for your diaries where the EdTech podcast are either supporting or attending. South by Southwest EDU takes place in Austin, Texas, USA on March the 4th to the 7th. DigiFest will host the second episode of the Education 4.0 series of the EdTech podcast on the 12th to the 13th of March in Birmingham, UK. And GSF, or the Global Education Skills World Forum, takes place in Dubai on the 23rd and 24th of March, with an EdTech day taking place just before where we're also involved. That's all for now. If you're feeling generous this week, leave us a like or a review. Always a pleasure. Have a good one. Bye bye.